this was a major crisis. This was the biggest health security event in a, in a century and arguably the biggest global challenge since the Second World War. Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the show, we have Sir Ashley Bloomfield. He is a trained public health doctor and former Director General of Health for New Zealand. Sir Ashley Bloomfield is an advisor to the World Health Organization on Pandemic Preparedness. He is also a professor at the University of Auckland in the School of Population Health, where he will lead their new Public Policy Impact Institute. Sir Ashley Bloomfield, welcome to the podcast. Kia ora. It's uh, nice to be here, Johnny. Now, I'm really looking forward to discussing your leadership reflections on being at the centre of New Zealand's COVID-19 response. But before we do, it would be great to spend a bit of time to talk about your background and how your upbringing impacted your career and journey into medicine. Yeah, thanks, Jono. Well, I, I don't come from a family of, of doctors. In fact, I don't even come from a family of, of tertiary students. So my brother and I were the first in our, in our family, really wider family, to go to university. I, I come from a, a pretty modest background. I grew up in a, a very, uh, you know, in, in a sense, quite a poor suburb in Napier for the first six years of my life and then shifted to Wellington. My father was someone who had left school quite young, uh, as you did in those days, um, but clearly had um, capability and ambition and, uh, and he worked very hard. So he found his way into senior roles in the motor vehicle industry uh, during his life. And my mother was a school teacher and uh, a primary school teacher. And I guess she was someone who, who really uh, knew the value of education and, uh, and I guess had, both of them had a huge influence on my life. Um, I'm the middle of, of three siblings and uh, still, you know, in, in very close contact with and uh, had a great uh, fat relationship with my siblings, even though our, our parents in our past. But um, yeah, I would, I would say I come from a pretty modest um, uh, background, but my parents saved very hard to send me to what they felt was the best school they could afford to send me to. Uh, and I, you know, was have always been one of those people who looks at the various opportunities and, and, and takes them. And for my part, that wasn't just academic, but uh, I was involved in kind of just about every school uh, pursuit on offering, uh, including that, you know, pipe band and uh, athletic sort of pursuits and, and of course being a Kiwi uh, rugby as well. How do you feel being such a generalist early in your life informed your approach to a professional career? Yes, well one of the things I've I've done throughout my career is is I have never had a sort of a five year plan about where I wanted to be. I, I've always wanted to keep, you know, in moving through roles. But a key a key principle for me was to take opportunities as they arose and indeed to particularly take those ones that might push me outside of my comfort zone where because that's where you learn and particularly in leadership you know uh, leadership's being described as like wading into the swamp so you never get up any day every day actually and think this is going to be an easy day it's always challenging but the question is is just how you respond to those challenges, and of course, the bigger the challenge, the the, the greater the, the the lessons, the greater the opportunity to grow, and the greater for self reflection and insight. And to me, that's what's most important for growing as a leader. Speaking of challenges, getting into medical school and then practicing as a junior doctor can hold its own series of trials and tribulations. What did you learn most when you reflect on that early part of your education and career? 
It certainly can be a challenge. And I dare say that it was probably 30 years ago or more that I was a junior doctor. And I think it's it's even more stressful and uh, challenging for those who are graduating now and, and heading out into a, an even more complex healthcare system. But one of the things I will say as a junior doctor back in my day, which was the early 90s, was you didn't have the level of more senior support. Uh, we were... Um, House, my wife and I were, were house officers or junior doctors in a, a provincial hospital here in New Zealand. And, you know, I can well remember my first week where I was on the night shift and I was the only doctor in the, in the hospital. And it was, a, it was a very daunting prospect. Two lessons from that. The first is that it's not just about you. You're surrounded by all these other good people, and in particular nursing staff who are hugely experienced and are there to support and advise and, uh, and in fact, even and, and teach you. Uh, so very quickly, you learn that just because you're the doctor, you're not the one, you know, you're not the smartest person in the room. But the second, of course, is that you you realize that you, you've got to just you've got the training, you've got the skills, and it's just a matter of doing one thing after another. So really, it's that, you know, there's a cricketing analogy, which is keep playing a straight bat. And I guess both those things were, you know, were fundamental to the to how I played the role uh, when COVID came along, you know, another 30 years down the track in, in my career as, uh, while I was Director General of Health. As you progressed through your career in medicine, what was your exposure to leadership like and how did you start to learn the skills that are needed in leadership? Well, I think we all, as we go through our careers and indeed as we go through life, we, we watch other people. And I, I love watching other people and I love watching people in leadership roles even now to see how they deal with situations, to see how they respond, to see how they deploy different leadership styles. And I guess we all start to form a view about what we feel are, you know, uh, uh, good leadership responses and not so good leadership responses. And so I've always been interested in that. And and particularly as, as you do medicine and you start to, uh, you work with key mentors, people who really guide you as you do uh, your different uh, attachments and different specialties. You get inspired by different people, and I certainly found that myself. And early on also, um, even as I was a junior doctor up in Whangarei here in, in the northern part of New Zealand, the, watching those who were, were, were in leadership roles inside the organisation, I was uh, a union representative for the junior doctors there, and so I had interaction with them around uh, around some of the negotiations for, for junior doctors uh, pain conditions and and just it gives you it gives you an opportunity and I took that opportunity early on to watch how different people behave in those situations because leadership really is ultimately about about behaviors and unless you're you're leading yourself you're not really in a great position to lead others and lead context and leading self of course is always about how you want to come across what are your values what are your behaviors I get the sense that this was something you were actively uh, not only thinking about but but taking action on early in your career. Now, I want to move on to an important inflection point, which was when you decided to go into public health. Why was that? Well, public health as a specialty, in, for me, provided an opportunity to, to step aside from the clinical inter, uh, interface, which I really enjoyed. I, I loved the clinical work I did both in hospital-based specialties and also in general practice. I did some uh, general practice work. Public health to me provide an opportunity to kind of lift up and to look at health and well-being at a different level. And I really, in a way, went on with the training program because a good friend from medical school had done it. And he said, look, I think you'd really enjoy this. 
so I put my hat in the ring. I got selected on the training program and I wasn't sure, but once I got in, involved, I realized, yeah, this is my, this is my place. Uh, this really pushes my barrow as it were. And I, it, it, I, I again just took the opportunities right through my training to look at how could I develop a wide range of skills and experiences. So again, sort of taking that generalist approach and towards the end of that training time, had the good fortune of, of spending some time in Wellington in the capital city as part of the, 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 policy, the policy ministry and found that being part of the public service combined with public health was really my happy place. And uh, I sort of joke about the fact I came to Wellington for six months in 1997 and I'm still here because I just, that, that nexus of public service, public policy and the politics that goes around that uh, and the ability to really influence uh, aspects of government policy at a level that would truly impact on wider population health and well-being was just, um, I found that exciting and still do. I wondered if you could elaborate a bit further on the advice side of things. With your training and background, you become an expert in finding and analysing research and evidence all for the public well-being, but then you need to communicate this with stakeholders. And one pretty important group are those uh, democratically elected politicians who may have a different agenda. So what was that like? Yeah, this is a key, a key sort of uh, currency for, for working in the public service. And one of the things about the New Zealand public service is it is politically neutral. So senior people, in fact, people right throughout the system don't change when the government changes, when there's a, a shift in political persuasion from perhaps the left to the right or vice versa. I think it's a real strength of the New Zealand system. It's it's um, it's by no it's uh, it's not the only approach, but it's the one that works here. And and therefore, fundamental to that is you have to be seen to be politically neutral. You have to seem to be be seen to be trusted, and to be able to have that stewardship role that endures uh, beyond just the current government. So you've got that longer term view. And of course, influence in any setting is fundamentally about the quality of the relationships you have and relationships of trust. Even if you disagree on issues or approaches per se, the uh, the relationship of trust should endure uh, beyond disagreements. You know, you should be able to disagree agreeably. Uh, and so, you know, some great advice I had early in my career was to, to spend a lot of time focusing on making sure the relationship is strong and enduring, uh, regardless of what the issue of the day might be. And that's something, again, that served me very well through my career. And come COVID uh, and, the, and the experience I had as Director General of Health, the, the, the 25 years of sort of investment in relationships right across the system, both the health system, I should say, and the public service system, uh, really uh, were fundamental, I think, to my ability to, to, to influence and to get things done. I get the sense that you have a very strong belief in the value of the public service and its role as being you know, a pillar of a, of a functioning democratic society. I wondered if you could touch on where this perspective came from and why you feel the public service is so vital. Well, a couple of things there. First of all, of course, was being in the middle of it and working in it and seeing and observing and learning from and being mentored by great public servants. Uh, and, and I guess that whetted my appetite and, and seeing the role of the public service in supporting 
good decisions to be made by governments that really did improve um, well-being and also address inequities. So that was a key a key focus for me. So sort of being part of that and, and I guess having been part of a, a group of people who were able to influence and, you know, my early interests were around tobacco control, um, uh, non-communicable disease prevention and control. And in some areas, we, we, we did well here in New Zealand and, and smoking was one of them. I guess the second real influence for me was spending time at the World Health Organization. I had a year uh, in Geneva at the WHO, which was, you know, a really interesting, challenging, but um, informative year. And of course, once you step outside of your own experience, your own country, your own um, public service, and and are able to look more globally and see how Publics, the public service functions in other countries or doesn't, and and really then what are the prerequisites for uh, for good governance in a country that then leads to improvements in well-being and addressing inequities and the things that struck me were well first and foremost you need you need security you need safety you need there to be no armed conflict underway it's very hard to govern a country uh, and look after people if there's armed conflict or if um, uh, or, or if people don't feel safe or the, or security is compromised. But then, of course, those key elements of good governance that include uh, a really strong, non-corrupt public service. And it wasn't until I stepped outside of the New Zealand public service and, and realised there were some things I had taken for granted. It's by no means perfect, but it's certainly seen as one of the, the, the least corrupt, most transparent public services globally. And so I, I, when I returned from Geneva in 2012, I, I had this renewed respect for, appreciation for, and commitment to the public service in New Zealand. It sounds like seeking out those novel experiences and being a bit of a generalist again has been really fruitful on not only gaining perspective, but I'm sure creating important relationships internationally. Now, you mentioned the New Zealand Public Service scores quite highly on the international stage, and Aside from a couple of the elements that you've mentioned, I wondered if you could go a bit further on some of those success factors. Well, a history of, of you know, strong governance and uh, I think New Zealand has got the pillars of, of a strong democracy um, there. It's got, um, you know, pretty high voter and citizen engagement with, with election processes. It's got a a, a strong, credible, highly trusted public service. And we saw that trust increase through COVID uh, quite significantly when people saw, gosh, the public service is there, they've got our backs. Um, we've got a, despite all the challenges um, that the media, the mainstream media face with with developments over the last couple of decades, we've got you know really good uh, journalists here who take their job of holding those in power to account very seriously. And I was certainly on the receiving end of some of the, you know, the, the pretty sharp questioning and often on a daily basis from them in that regard. We've got a, an independent and strong judiciary and um, and we've got, um, you know, strong civil society as well. And so I think all those elements are, are essential if overall the country is going to be able to find its way and in particular find its way through those events like a you know black swan event swan events like a global pandemic um you know this with the we've we've got rapid onset of collective global amnesia at the moment but this was a major crisis this was the biggest health security event in a in a century and arguably the biggest global challenge since the second world war um 
And so it required a really um, thoughtful, strong, well-led response. And I guess all those elements combined in New Zealand to at least put us in the, in the position where we could do that. They were necessary, but not sufficient. And then, of course, there's that secret ingredient of really strong, um, trustworthy, humble leadership that, that built the public trust that was required to, to um, get people to do quite extraordinary things uh, that were necessary for us, particularly in those first couple of years of the pandemic. Yes, it seems like humanity's ability to collaborate and adapt is, is our great superpower, but it also can mean that we shift the goalposts really quickly and maybe lose some perspective on the magnitude of the changes and harm that are being caused and and continue to be caused by this global pandemic. In that vein, uh, no system is perfect. So what are we missing? How do we continue to improve? Well, a key thing for me is, and we, we saw during COVID, the imperative to act quickly, to uh, implement rapidly and not and not necessarily perfectly, but to to learn and adjust and and do things differently. And one of the challenges that the, that politicians face and indeed that governments face is uh, in normal times pretty low tolerance for risk. And so often that's reflected and we might have very good policy that's evidence-based, there might be funding there, but where we tend to fall down or, or not necessarily achieve what we want to achieve is in the implementation. And we, what we saw through COVID was there was a, there was a, an, it was necessary to take risks. And whilst the media would often beat us up about failure, uh, you know, my pushback to them was actually it would only be a failure if we didn't review and learn and adjust. But in non-COVID times, we've seen, and it's not unique to New Zealand, this quite rapid reversion to the same old way of doing things where decisions are made very slowly. There's often, a, a, you know, a, not much sense of imperative of, um, of getting on and, and doing stuff. And things happen slowly. And then uh, as soon as things don't go perfectly, there's sort of this major, uh, the brakes go on because, because of risk aversion. And I think there was a huge lesson from COVID is we should be uh, able to to speak to, to to manage and speak to risk, to manage and speak to problems when they arise openly and honestly, and actually recognise this doesn't undermine trust, it builds trust uh, if we've got a really good explanation. But so, so in a sense, the a little more impatience about the way we the way we implement, the speed with which we implement and the learning that we um, that we accrue as we go along, so that actually, it's not going to be a you know a, a perfect three year implementation by the plan that was set out on day one. That's a, that old military adage: your plan's fantastic until the first contact. So you've got to you've got to have the the space and the approach that is allowing learning as you go and adjustment. And I think that the real challenge, especially with these these wicked problems that we're still facing is to be able to open up a place a space where we can implement rapidly and adjust as we go yeah i think COVID 19 was interesting in that it was this single focal point uh, and people could understand the why you know it was definitely a wicked problem we had incomplete uh, changing information sometimes by the hour uh, but it was a singular tricky virus and that helped us to uh, understand the why and, and many countries were able to mobilize political, social, 
financial resources um, to mount a response. But in non-wartime, uh, healthcare doesn't often have such a, a focal point. There can be many goals, sometimes competing, uh, sometimes even conflicting. How do you think that we can improve alignment in healthcare such that we can have the same sorts of uh, collective action, resolve, and ultimately outcomes in healthcare? Yes, just to emphasise the point you've made, that COVID created a, a really clear sense, not just of purpose, of the of the why, but also of focus. And so we, we, we had to absolutely focus all our effort, all our resources on our response to COVID. And then, and then of course, part of that was implementing our vaccination programme. So we showed how you can implement in New Zealand and many countries did this. Uh, you can scale up and roll out an, an amazing population-wide um, and equitable uh, vaccination program, uh, which is not what we tend to do, like, as you say, in peacetime. The challenge for the healthcare system in New Zealand, and it is a challenge globally, of course, is um, it's got more, not less complex, uh, delivering health and healthcare has. Uh, the the global context within which we're trying to do that has got more complex and challenging as well. And, you know, 30 years ago, perhaps when I was a junior doctor, uh, the, the sense of purpose, the sense of focus was much easier to, to maintain. Uh, whereas now with, uh, with this increased complexity, it's, it's really imperative that people do have that clear sense of focus and purpose. And I think uh, we were already challenged in that regard pre-COVID, but then COVID's come along and sort of been a major disruptor in many respects as well. It's, it's amplified and, um, and in fact, kind of, it's amplified some of those things that were already happening. I mean, um, uh, health workforce is a really key, a really good example here. And the challenges we've got in New Zealand, again, are, are very much global ones. But what it requires, of course, is not to, we can't keep muddling through. We need to really step back and say, uh, and, and ask the question and look to answer the questions, what is the future of healthcare uh, in, a, in a world where our population has aged where, and continues to age, um, where there is much more we can do, where it doesn't matter how many people we train, there will always be a gap in the workforce. What's the what? What are the things we need to think about and do differently? What are the what? What's the huge potential for using uh, data and digital tools for for um, capitalising on AI where appropriate? Uh, and most of all, and this is the thing I'm really interested in, is what I think COVID showed us is our biggest health workforce is our citizens, and we forget that uh, most healthcare is provided by individuals and their families outside of formal healthcare settings, day in, day out, throughout their lives. And we need to think much more about how the healthcare system uh, can train people to support our largest health workforce. And in fact, we relied on them as our largest health workforce during COVID uh, to do the right things. And that was in New Zealand, our success that people uh, took on that role. Uh, and I think there's a real lesson for us, and, and, and this needs to be, I feel, a lens that we we need to look now at healthcare and think what's the future of healthcare where we uh, fully enable citizens uh, and you know as our largest health and healthcare workforce and wellbeing workforse um, to be best supported. 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a great lesson to learn and a great way to shore up a way of envisioning uh, not just the future but but the present. It also will ask questions of of clinicians in how we realize this potential in our communities and how we share and even safely give up some of the power that we have in healthcare uh, to better support, as you say, our largest and most committed health workforce, uh, our citizens. So how do we actually realize this vision? Yes, this is, this is the key challenge. And in a way, it's, it's one that's been recognized before and it's been reflected in this notion of person-centered healthcare or family-centered uh, we, it, it's you know the rhetoric is there, the policy intent is there, it, just as there is a policy intent around a much greater focus on primary and community-based uh, service delivery. But there, there are these things that, um, and a colleague at the University of Auckland, Tim Tembinsel, describes them as the kind of the black holes of uh, in healthcare that have this gravitational pull. There's a gravitational pull from. Uh, primary care to specialist care, the funding, the the people tend to go in that direction. And even in the community, there's this gravitational pull from non-medical to medical um, delivery of care. So yes, it requires um, a sort of look at models of care and the way the health system is funded and the policy settings. But it also goes to the way we train health professionals. And you talked about power and uh, you know there's a, a phrase i really love which is the only appropriate use of power is to empower others and uh, in a way this is what we need to train our our students and our health professionals and is that um it's not about them their profession uh it's or their organization even it's about the role that they play in empowering individuals and this again goes to that relationship of trust that we saw was so important for New Zealand's response during COVID-19. Very often in healthcare, and particularly in public health, we're wanting people to change the way they do things, to change their behaviours or to take on new um, behaviours. But we don't take the time to establish the relationship of trust for them to, to be sure that they understand the why. Um, and, and in a way, you know, this is that we, we put the onus on them and we talk about health literacy uh, and, you know, if only people were more literate and understood health better, whereas actually the responsibility should be on those working in the system. I've used this phrase, health system literacy. We need to understand the realities of people's lives, the, the, the issues that they're facing, the challenges they're facing, the things that motivate them to get to the relationship of trust. And then, as we saw during COVID-19, if there is that relationship of trust, people actually will do quite extraordinary things. They know what to do and how to do it. Uh, and so uh, that needs to go to the heart, I think, of, of the way we train um, train our, our, our professionals for the future system. Now, I wanted to jump to the COVID pandemic and talk about uh, your approach to planning and decision-making. I know from the decision-making piece, uh, Dr. Michael Ryan from the WHO has a salient quote that you've referred to where he says, be fast, have no regrets, be the first mover. If you need to be right, you will never win. Perfect is the enemy of good. Everyone is, fear, is in fear of error, but the greatest error is not to move. Speed trumps perfection. And then when you look at the planning side of things, in 2019, the UK and US uh, topped, were in the top two of rankings for pandemic preparedness. And New Zealand was number 35. 
So uh, I'd be curious to understand uh, what was your approach to having the right structures and processes in place and utilizing plans uh, such that you could execute in such a time-critical environment? Well, I dare say we didn't necessarily have those structures and processes in place. Uh, we had them to some extent because, like I, I imagine most or, or just about every country, we had um, sort of you know secu- security. We had, we had appropriate apparatus to look at security threats to do that initial response. But there's a big difference between a pandemic like COVID-19 where the threat is evolving and changing all the time and as a long you know as a sort of medium to long-term situation as opposed to a one-off event which we'd had plenty of experience in New Zealand with earthquakes um, with weather events we'd had a terrorist attack uh, in 2019 in, in Christchurch here we'd even had a measles outbreak but we you know a measles outbreak in a sense is a known quantity we know what to do uh, we've got we had vaccines, and we were able to get on top of that reasonably quickly. The situation here, of course, was very different. And as you've pointed out, many countries had plans in place, and and we were by no means unique in having a very thorough pandemic influenza plan. The problem was the the virus didn't play ball here, and we ended up with a COVID, you know, coronavirus pandemic. So this then goes to the heart, and I think this is one of the key lessons for New Zealand and other countries is that it, it's one thing to, to have the plans and preparation in place, and that is important. But the key thing is what happens once a threat like this emerges. And that goes, in my mind, very much to the, to the leadership, the decision-making, uh, and the ability to have people who are trained to be agile and flexible and comfortable with advising on and making decisions with incomplete information in a rapidly changing environment. And I think that's where... In New Zealand, uh, we might not we might have been thirty fifth on the global security index, uh, as you say. The USA and UK were first and second, respectively. But we did have all those fundamental pillars to enable rapid decision making, and I think people who stood up in that le- those leadership roles, uh, and despite the, ch- the huge challenge, the uncertainty, the stress, the intensity, and the relentless pace. Uh, worked collectively to make the best possible decisions in a timely way. Now, no doubt there were countless challenging decisions that you and your team had to make, but I'm sure there were a few um, decisions, pieces of advice that were high orders of magnitude, uh, such as the borders closing, lockdowns and mandates. What was it like reviewing those options and providing that advice in the context of a, of a pandemic uh, causing such devastation internationally? Yes, there were some decisions that were, in retrospect, and even at the time, were so big that you you hadn't anticipated you would be advising on those decisions and that politicians you're working with were making decisions on things like national lockdowns, uh, on closing the border and and requiring everybody who came into the country to spend 14 days in a managed isolation or quarantine facility. rolling out a vaccination program and putting in place mandates around certain groups being required to be vaccinated if they were to continue in their work, mask mandates, and so on. Uh, Of course, the important thing here is to uh, make sure you've really uh, canvassed all the advice you can, both technical and, in particular, legal advice. New Zealand's uh, got quite a high bar from a, a legal perspective. We've got a Bill of Rights, and 
so every one of those mandates, every decision that required people to do things uh, did need to meet the requirements of the Bill of Rights. And so there was, you know, many other countries don't have such a bill. And so in a sense, that gave a level of comfort that the legal advice we were getting from the government's lawyers was that um, under the circumstances, uh, this was a reasonable um, and legally appropriate thing to do. I think the other key point here is we were constantly looking at and learning from what other countries were doing. Were doing. And when it came to things like um, vaccination mandates, we were by no means unique. We were, we were by no means the first. And whilst you know people might argue just because others are doing it, it doesn't make it right. Again, we the, the context was this incredibly threatening global pandemic. And it, there was no doubt, and everybody I think took this seriously, that vaccination was a key way for us to find our way to a, to, to a pathway out of um, all those restrictions, including border closures that were in place. I think the international context is really helpful to ground this conversation. If you look at death rates, uh, New Zealand had about 1,400. And if we had rates like the UK or the US, we would have had about 13,000 or 15,000 respectively. I think additionally, when you look at these really huge uh, decisions, uh, you can look up polls that were taken around the time that these decisions were made, and you actually find a pretty positive sentiment around these sorts of decisions. And I think that was in part because we could see what was happening uh, around, around the world, and we could also understand the why. Some of that was because of your communication uh, at the daily 1pm stand-up where you were a staple on, on New Zealanders' TVs when you communicated and updated the country and also took questions from the media. So what was that like? Well, uh, I, I describe it as harrowing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this was the, 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 the ch- my big challenge really right through um, the COVID response was uh, it it, it wasn't intended, it wasn't by design, but from quite early on, um, the role that I played in regularly updating the public and often alongside politicians. Again, this wasn't a model that was unique to New Zealand. You can look at many countries had this combination of a sort of a, a public official with technical expertise and a politician, often the, the head of state, um, briefing the public on a daily basis. Uh, the I guess the key thing for me was it became apparent really early on. And I'm glad from day one, um, when I stood up, I just was myself and and tried to be calm and reassuring and and come across as I think people would describe, I would come across whether it wasn't a pandemic, when it wasn't a pandemic. The people, the thing people most remember is the fact that I was calm, that I gave them a sense of assurance, even if inside, inside myself, I didn't necessarily feel calm. And this is an important thing. Again, it's that old leadership adage, people don't remember what you said or did. They do remember how you made them feel. Now, of course, um, it's one thing to come across as, as calm and assuring, but you've also got to be on top of your game. You have to have the information at your fingertips. You've got to be prepared to take on any question the media throws at you, and they certainly um, do. That's their job is to is to hold uh, hold us to account. And so it was two or three hours of preparation every day for those um, those stand-ups, and they were they were a sort of a, a pretty exhausting experience. But as you've said, became fundamental to building the trust and confidence of the public, so that 
when when we had to um, you know when there were big decisions and we were asking quite extraordinary things of them to go home and isolate at home for weeks on end cut off from their connections to family and friends and communities that they did it um, you can't police a lockdown even we talked about the vaccine mandates in fact by the time the mandates came in in New Zealand we already had very high rates of coverage because people believed and they trusted uh, the, the, uh, the the vaccination program, the vaccine and the people running it. So, um, I, you know, one of the conclusions I've drawn from COVID and I talk, I've talked about this uh, publicly is that in a sense, our communications approach was our most important public health intervention. Yeah, and an aspect of that communication piece, which was obviously really critical, was being transparent. Uh, when you're talking about science and particularly a, a novel virus where information is getting uh, changed and evidence is getting updated, that means that ultimately decisions are going to, to change as, as the information comes through. And so I think bringing the public along on that journey by being transparent uh, is really vital to maintain the trust of people uh, such that when those decisions are getting changed, then uh, people can follow along. Now, Obviously, behind the scenes, uh, managing and, and leading teams is, is a big part of your role. I know that you have a definition of leadership uh, that says leadership is an invitation for collective action. I wondered if you could unpack that definition. Yeah, thanks, John. I, uh, I do think that's a, a, a great leadership definition. I've come across many in my career, and this one was actually just offered at a conference I was at about five years ago, a disability advocate here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And the reason it resonated with me is, it, it, I guess it sort of um, rounded out what I had seen and what I'd learned in, in my career in leadership roles. You know, first of all, it's not about, leaders don't tell people what to do. They ensure there is direction and a sense of purpose. So in a way, it's extending an invitation to people. Here's, you know, here's what we need to do. Um, and it's a it's a collective process and a process of engagement. Again, that the collective bit of this uh, reinforces that le leadership is not an individual pursuit. Uh, it's a team activity, and leaders go nowhere if they're on their own. And finally, you know, this notion it's about action. I mentioned earlier on this uh, this analogy of wading into the swamp. Well, the thing about wading into the swamp of leadership is if you stand still, you sink. And so it's always about the next thing. It's about, you know, going forward. It's about um, what's the next thing we need to do. Leaders never stay. There's no such thing as leading business as usual, the status quo. Uh, and so I think the definition just summarizes those core elements of leadership. And I've offered it, extended it, to, uh, the offer of that definition to many people. And it seems to resonate. It's certainly one that, that guided me right through the pandemic. And as you pointed out, uh, that people know, I, I knew, and people, the public in New Zealand know that it wasn't just me, the person standing up on the podium communicating every day, but there was this extraordinary team alongside me. Um, and each one of those team members was absolutely essential to our overall effort and to my ability to be able to stand up there every day and confidently um, and calmly uh, update people on what was happening, what we expected. And people tolerated a high level of uncertainty. Often our horizon was only 24 hours, but 
to know that we, you know, that we we were doing our very best, that there was a team of people who were working night and day to make sure they were looked after, that New Zealanders were looked after, I think was again critical to building that trust and therefore our ability to extend the invitation to collective action, uh, which we had to do on many occasions, whether it was to stay home because of a lockdown or indeed to go and be vaccinated. So from going from these uh, regular stand-ups fronting the public and the media to now stepping down, how did you know it was the right time and what role do leaders have in leadership development? Uh, and two comments here. First of all is, you know, my decision to step down from the role four years in uh, was a number of factors, but it was really, yeah, I think this is a really important leadership behaviour is knowing that the role's not about you and that when it's the right time, it's it's important to step down. And I felt like I had given it everything. I had certainly had a, a pretty intense, extremely demanding time during covid uh, both personally and also for my family. And I felt that combined with the forthcoming quite significant changes to the health system in New Zealand, it was a good time for me to step back and allow others to to step in and up and lead. And I have, I had and have great confidence in those who have taken on those leadership roles in the system. So, you know, good leadership is about knowing when to stand down. Uh, and then the second part, you know, is a really imp- of your question is a really important point about a, a key role for leaders is to nurture and grow uh, and succeed others and ensure there are others who can step into those roles. And there are a whole lot of ways you can do that. But I, I just think this is a really important leadership behavior of um, leaders who lead with with humility. You know, that, that those characteristics of leading with humility is being a, is listening to others, knowing it's not all about you, that you don't have all the, all the answers, uh, being prepared to say when you've changed your mind or when you got it wrong, but also knowing that the role, that part of your stewardship responsibility to the role and to the system is to to bring through and train and share knowledge with and coach and, and um, empower um, others to, to, to be able to step up into those senior roles as well. Well, I think we've just got time for, for one more question. What advice would you give future healthcare leaders who are looking to perhaps join the public service and get into leadership roles? Well, the first advice I would give is that um, it's extremely rewarding and enjoyable and there, there's no aspect of my public service career to date that I have had regrets about. Uh, it's it's a great honour and privilege. And, you know, whilst COVID itself was a huge challenge, there was also, I guess, an, I firmly believe an enormous privilege to be in the role I was in to serve the public in that situation. The second uh, piece of advice I would give would be to perhaps do as I did, you know, um, take opportunities as they ar- arise. The leadership's a learning journey and uh, the opportun- every opportunity you have, whether it's a work or a non-work related opportunity, to understand more about yourself and to understand more about others, that's the way you will um, develop leadership skills, experience and expertise. And, uh, you, you know, I just encourage people to, to take those steps on that journey, knowing that uh, it's quite normal to feel uh, a bit overwhelmed to feel a bit of imposter syndrome, I still do, uh, and also to to have knockbacks to have, that things won't go right. But, but those, in a sense, are a bit of a gift because that's that's an opportunity to learn and grow, uh, and uh, and to lead self even better. 
Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Sir Ashley Bloomfield, thank you so much for your time today and all of your contributions to public health. Thanks very much, Jono. It's been a real privilege. Kia ora. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.